Welcome to Out of the Box Stories. I'm your host, Allison Paradise. On today's episode, you'll hear from Allison Hunter, Technical Operations Manager in the Faculty of Natural Sciences Department of Life Sciences at Imperial College London. Allison joins me in our conversation from her office at Imperial College London. During our conversation, she describes her over decade-long crusade for energy-efficient freezers in the UK. Her tenacity and undeterred passion is inspirational. When I asked her how she kept doing this work in spite of very little support in the early years, she told me she just had to. It was in her bones. From this comment, our conversation moved to an exploration of what that means to have something in your bones from a very different perspective, that of acting in music. Allison shares some incredible insights into connecting with our bodies, and with that, our intuition and a sense of understanding of who we really are. I am so excited to be here today with Allison Hunter. Allison, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for asking me. It's such an honor to have you here. I thought we would start with how you're related to the Green Labs community and how we know each other, because not everybody knows you. Do you want to introduce that? That's great. Yeah, so I started my sustainability in labs in about 2008 when I was faced with no extra power in the building and I had to find out, well, what was using the power? Because nobody could tell me. Nothing was metered. The the building wasn't metered. The floors weren't metered. So um, I got a carbon trust energy monitor and went round figuring out where's all the energy going so I could fit some confocal microscopes into my laboratory. And to my great, great surprise, uh, the freezers... Um, of which I thought I had about 80, but it turned out I had 200 because they're white and they're invisible and they just blend into the white lab. Uh, We're guzzling huge amounts of energy, especially the minus 80 freezers. So some of them were costing about £1,200 per annum, uh, pounds sterling to, to run just for the electricity. And also the minus 20s as well, obviously much less power. And so then that started me on my journey. So it took quite a long, it was nearly four years to get to the point of costing things, working out what units to use, kilowatt hours. Nobody could tell me what to do. Um, and then uh, we had a new incoming head of sustainability, Kat Thorne, who put me in touch with uh, Peter James at S-Lab, who, were ve- who was very interested in all of this. And I did some presentations in 2013 and 2014 on what I'd found out about freezers, and they encouraged me to apply for some Hefke Catalyst funding uh, because it was becoming an increasing part of my job and I'm looking after 140 scientists and their research. So um, putting sustainability issues in the labs and drawing people's attention to it was taking more time. So we got a Hefke Catalyst grant uh, money and some money from King's College London to get somebody in to continue and roll out the programme. So I'd rolled it out on one campus and it had to roll out to all of the other campuses. And that led me to then getting a job at Imperial College London. And that's when I had the great fortune to meet you um, because Peter James again had, had suggested that 
you were coming over to the UK and it would be great to meet you and it absolutely it, it absolutely was and he had Una Fitzgerald coming over from Ireland as well and could we maybe have a, a meeting and hold that at Imperial College which we did in 2019 so um, I was really delighted to meet you then uh, it was really inspiring to hear you know your overview of uh, Migraine Labs and what's happening internationally and uh, we put something together from what was happening at Imperial and Una Fitzgerald talked about uh, what she was doing at her labs in Ireland. And it was a really good catalyst for our sort of continued discussions when you came to the UK again. So it's, it feels like a, a long journey, but it feels that it's gone really quickly. And uh, yeah, I think the whole lab sustainability movement has really blossomed and it's been a real pleasure to work with you and My Green Labs and now with James Connolly as a CEO at My Green Labs and putting us in touch with um, other laboratories in Europe as well. I've got contacts in the Netherlands and in Austria now and that's all been through My Green Labs. So um, it's been a really positive uh, connection that we've had. When you started doing this work, was it well received or did people think, what are you doing? When I initially started this, uh, nobody was interested either it, from the building management point of view, from an academic point of view. There were no no technicians interested, but it was just, but this must be done. We're using, this is taxpayers' money that we're spending. Uh, you know, I'm employed as a public servant, really. Uh, that's the way it's funded in the UK, centrally funded um, through uh, UK research funding to, to to manage these labs and I need to do as much as I possibly can to make that work really efficiently and effectively and certainly the the freezer study was nearly half a million pounds a year across King's College London it was costing and I pushed so uh, there's a, a well-known department store chain in the UK and they they, they had all of their freezers, domestic freezers, were A-rated. So there was a rating system from A to G so that you could decide which was the most energy-efficient freezer to purchase. So you might be able to buy a cheaper energy-inefficient freezer, but then you're going to be paying for the electricity costs. And I was, why can I not do that with a lab freezer? <laughs> and so I published a little article in an environmental journal called ENDS in I think 2014, 2015. Why, why is, the, and there's no legislation. So I lobbied the UK government and I lobbied the EU and I managed to find out people who were looking at professional refrigeration. So um, I worked, uh, I was put in contact with some other people who helped me do a costing. So I gave them all the figures of, of what we'd done at King's and we then, I then looked at all the universities across Europe of which there are 3,300, and just extrapolated the cost financially for freezer consumption. And that's not including all other institutes and hospitals. I mean, they have a lot of laboratories and they have a lot of freezers for long-term storage of samples. And I just felt this was a hidden, you know, there's no legislation for lab freezers, but there is for domestic ones. And that just seemed to me to be complete nonsense. So um, I've been lobbying the EU and basically we need to have standards put in place and it was about 
how do we do that? So I was put in touch with the British Standards Institute and I lobbied them for two or three years until I found somebody who understood what it was I was asking. And she put me in touch with the Department of Business, Energy, Industry, Strategy, who had also started looking at this. So I was able to give them all of my information. And so there's a group of technical managers and manufacturers and design people working towards putting uh, standards together for what should a lab fridge be? What should it be constructed? Because there's huge variety in the energy consumption across the board, depending on which manufacturer you, you use or how old the freezer is. And I just think it should be labelled like it is in a shop. If you want to go and get something for your kitchen, your freezer's broken down, you want to buy a new one, you want an energy efficient one, uh, that there should be some way of, of, of being able to do that. So hopefully... If we get a British standard put in place, and obviously we still need to do testing, there's lots of work to do on that. If that goes through and is successful, um, I've already got people across the EU, um, in Austria and Switzerland, and I think in France, uh, to unify all of the rules across Europe, and the European Commission would look to put that in place. And obviously we're a long way from that yet, but... You know, I asked that question back in like 2013, it's like nearly 10 years, and it just feels slow progress. But I think if you look at um, all of the equipment that we use in labs, um, one of the big things that you can do is look at um, when you're procuring instruments, is ask what the energy consumption is, and build that into what you're doing, uh, so that you, you force these companies to consider this as a, an option. Even after knowing you now for a few years, I'm still learning more about what it is that you've done and just honestly in awe of how much work you've done and how much you've contributed to, to this movement. Really, it feels like very quietly because you spent the first four years just by yourself essentially doing that work so what kept you going I couldn't not do it there just seemed to be a moral I couldn't it, no I was possessed I was absolutely possessed it was just this is a simple why can I go into John Lewis and buy <laughs> an energy rated freezer and why can I not buy one for the lab this is nonsense this is absolute nonsense. And, you know, I had to sort of figure out myself for that there was no, you know, I told everybody, I told procurement, I told everybody, somebody should be doing something about this. And actually what you find out is that you're the person who has to do that because everyone thinks everyone else is doing their bit. And what you find is it's not, the, the dots are not getting joined. And it's finding out, yeah, what is it that I'm asking and then realising at each stage what the next level is. You know, having to write to the EU with my proposal and then working with them to work something up to give to a working party. I had no idea how any of that worked or the timeframes or the etiquette of that. Um, so that was, you know, people were really helpful. But then, you know, then the next block was getting, we need a British standard. So, you know, I can tell everybody now, well, if you don't legislate for this in the manufacture, you're not going to get change. And certainly in the lab, uh, in any lab, 
that you're working, whether you're um, in a company or an institution or a university or a hospital, if everybody is asking for this, the manufacturers will move to what you want. So we all need to be unified in asking, are the parts repairable? Um, can the energy consumption be you know, improved? Does it switch off at the end of the day? Does it need to be left on all the time? You can ask those questions and the, the manufacturers might say to you, what? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? But if everybody as a, as a body of people say, we want this. And I think, you know, we're getting that with the ACT label um, because obviously that, that is easier and quicker to put in place than it is to spend 10 years trying to push through and find out who the right people are and what kind of legislation is there, who's responsible for that and how do we get it implemented. That's a really long thing, long time. And so the EU decided to look at this because more than 200,000 units of the freezers are sold within the European Union in any year. But we've got huge numbers of specialist equipment, NMRs and mass spectrometers that are not sold in those numbers. And I think if we all say, well, what's the energy consumption? How are you going to measure it? And is that under what standards? Um, I think if everybody starts asking those questions, there'll be a sea change in the manufacturers to respond to that demand. That's what I would hope to see. And I think it is starting to happen now. I feel very conscious that I have to do the best by the researchers in my lab and be keep the bills of my department as minimal as possible because it may be different in different institutions, but here at Imperial College London, um, the department pays an estates bill to cover all of the utilities. And so all of the things that we use take a lot of juice. We have 70 controlled environment rooms that need temperature and humidity 24-7. It's expensive to do life science research. And it's, um, I just think, our moral duty to not waste resources. I, I just feel very passionate about it and quite possessed. So I didn't care what anybody else said. I wanted to know the answer. I wanted to push it as far as I could because I wasn't satisfied. <laughs> I wasn't satisfied with that. And I just, it just seemed so, it should be easy. This should be easy. And it wasn't. It really wasn't. <laughs> I didn't know how difficult it was going to be. I thought it would be straightforward, but it wasn't. But once I start something, I like to finish generally. <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought I, I, I just have to do this. I just absolutely have to do this. The fact that you listened to that voice that said that, I think, is what makes you so unique. Because I think oftentimes we hear that voice, but it seems almost like, well, why me? Maybe it shouldn't be me. Maybe I don't, I can't do this, or there's all these sort of obstacles that I can foresee. And so we just say, well, somebody else will take care of that. And your story about, say, the way that you describe feeling compelled reminds me of a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman who said something like, when we see a problem, it's because we have the capacity within ourselves to find the solution. And so we only see problems for things that we already know within ourselves the solution for. 
And it's just matching those things. It's having the courage to say, well, I see this and I know how to do something about it. And that's what you did because 2008, who was doing anything in 2008, right? There was Labs 21 here in the U.S. They were mostly focused though on whole lab buildings. They weren't really looking at equipment. It seems like in the U.K. not a whole lot was happening around lab sustainability in 2008. And there you were just seeing it and listening to that voice that says, okay, I have to do something about this. And then following it all the way through because, I mean, that's some serious tenacity. 2008 to 2022? And you're still going. That's so impressive. (laughs) Thank you. It just feels kind of that's what I should do. It, It doesn't feel like it's anything particularly extraordinary because everyone has that capability to ask questions and not to know for an answer. I think it's very easy. I think maybe 10 years previous to that, if I'd been told by absolutely everybody I spoke to, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I would have thought, oh, maybe I am wrong. And I would have kind of gone with that. Um, but it was in my, my gut. I mean, honestly, it was just, I, I will do this. I don't care what you say. And usually I do I, I, I do take people's advice and I, I do like to, sometimes I moderate what I do. I think, okay, yes, th- yeah, that's good advice. I will take that on board and I will change it. But not with this. No, it's <laughs> just not with this. I think probably the only other person was um, Kathy Aguilar-Ramirez in Boulder. Note that Alison is referring to Catherine Ramirez Aguilar of CU Boulder. I think she was starting her journey at that time, but at that time the internet wasn't so developed. And I searched and searched and searched and I couldn't find anything anywhere. But um, I spoke to everybody I knew about it and they just thought I was bonkers. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Um but I, I don't know, it just seemed the really obvious thing to do. And when I realised that nobody else was going to champion this, but I had, I have a voice, I, ha- I can ask questions, and it led me to places that I didn't know I was going to go to. Yeah, you know, and yeah, it was just um, in my bones, in my absolute, every cell of my body <laughs> wanted to just follow this through. It just seemed incredibly wasteful. I really appreciate that. Yes, that was very much the driving force behind the ACT label, as you mentioned, because I thought this took so long for the freezers. We can't. No, we haven't got time. We c- no, no, we'll all be yeah. dead by the time we work out all the other pieces mm-hmm. of equipment. We need something that's faster. Yeah. There's something that you just mentioned that made me think about the conversation we last had when we last saw each other in London. Somehow we managed to meet up for dinner and had one of the best conversations I think I've ever had in my life. Oh, wow. It was just so brilliant. I mean, I think we closed down the restaurant. If we could have (laughs) kept talking and if there had been another place to keep talking, I would have said, please stay and let us keep having this conversation. Yeah, it was very enlightening. I, it was a really wide-ranging and deep conversation about so many subjects. It was, uh, 
yeah, it was one of those epic conversations in life. And you just feel really connected to somebody who really, we've only met a couple of times, but I think we have a, a shared sense of um, values. And yeah, so that was a, a really fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you and learning about your life and, and you know, what has led you to, to where you are. And um, that was also really inspiring that you've, you've got, I mean, you went out and you've opened up with My Green Labs. Um, I couldn't have imagined how to do that in a million years. So I think you have been brave and stepped into new, lots of new territory. Um, yeah, so I admire your courage in, in doing that. I really do. Well, thank you. It feels exactly the same, though, as you describe it, right? It's like <laughs> I couldn't not do it. So it doesn't, mm -hmm. in the moment when you're doing it, it doesn't feel courageous. It feels like you have to do it. It must yeah. be. So, mm -hmm. and since I'm the one who sees it, I guess I'm the one who's doing it. But it's, but not in a way that feels burdensome, just in a way that that's your responsibility to the world. That's all. And you just are meant to carry through with it. Yeah. Yeah. In that conversation we talked a lot about sound and I can't tell you how many times I have thought back to the things that you shared with me over the last however many years it's been now, two years or so. And so what I was hoping is that maybe you could share that, that sort of knowing in your bones and the way that you know it through sound because I think you know it in a very unique way. Okay. So I had to, I was very shy as a child. Um, like I couldn't get on the bus and ask for my bus fare without going completely scarlet red. You know, I was an exceptionally shy person. Um, but I had done some drama at school as well as doing all my science and it was good fun. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed it being in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and mm -hmm. things like that. And um, when I was working in London, obviously I was doing science and I was doing my master's degree, but I just felt something was else was missing. And I thought, well, let's, there's uh, the great thing about being in London, are there are lots of places to go and things that are here. And one of those places is the City Literary Institution. And they do a huge range of different courses, all kinds of drama and art and sign language and ceramics and Mandarin. And um, it's right in the middle of London. So I did a voice and body course one Saturday because I had a busy, busy life doing my master's degree in the evening and working full time. And it just sort of was a revelation. And I just felt, again, it was something... I needed to do and I is that you can't really tell anybody why that is it just has to be <laughs> I have to do this and um, I was really lucky um, to, to meet a voice teacher Irene Bradshaw and I used to because I wanted to do Shakespeare and Ibsen I hadn't done any of these things in my English classes at school actually and I wanted to know more about those things and by using voice and body, you have to learn how to inhabit yourself as an actor. Well, I don't want to be an actor or be on stage or be on film or anything. 
And I was just doing it because we used to do a big voice and body warm-up. And I just felt, felt something. It just shifts energy in you. And what it did help me with was my confidence. Because if you're doing improv, you just got to get up. And she's given you a scene, you work with somebody, and then you have to get up and then you have to do it. And that's what you have to do in a lab. You have to present at lab meetings. You have to stand up in front of people. I always remember my um, professor, Sears secretary, Julie, had to give me a half a glass of sherry before I gave my master's <laughs> presentation because I was in such an absolute state <laughs> of terror of having to speak in front of people. Um, so going to these classes gave me some sense of grounding, like how you move, how you resonate sound in your body has a tremendous impact on how you talk and actually watching her work with other people and the difference that you can make. And obviously, if you are going to be an actor, you might need to get up into a nasal tone for a particular accent or whatever. So it was like, how do you inhabit yourself and how could you change that? for the purpose of acting if you were in a play. But I wasn't using it for that. I just wanted to move the sound around because it, it, it did make me feel more confident when I had to get up and stand and talk at meetings. All of the breath techniques and the grounding I got through those classes gave me the confidence to be able to progress in my career because if I was the sort of person who wasn't going to give talks... I wouldn't be able to do all of these sort of things now. So um, using that was just really important. And I'd done some tests at school at 16, at 18, at 25, and then when I was in my 40s. And all of them were the same, 50-50 for art and science. So I'm not like a science scientist. And I can see that I'm not because I like art and literature but I'm doing such a very intense job in a lots of exciting things that I have to learn and know about. And I like, you know, all of that. I, I'm really interested in it, but I need to take care of the arty side of me as well. And so I would suggest to people, go and figure out, go and do these tests, because I did a whole kind of different test all through my life. And it still kept coming back 50-50, sometimes 51% art, 49% science. <laughs> and so I think sometimes... We're not cut and dried people. Some people might be completely science focused, but for me, I need to make sure I put some of that balance in my life. Go to an art gallery, go and listen to some music um, and that sort of thing. And it's important for me to connect with that. But I couldn't have articulated that 20 years ago because I just didn't know myself well enough. And I think by uh, doing those sound classes, I somehow, you learn who you are a bit who are you because we're so in our heads and we're so oh when you talk to people it's all sometimes on a superficial level but when you do that sort of work you kind of figure out what your rhythm is what's my sound what's my rhythm what's what's true for me and by doing those things you're putting yourself in in touch with different kinds of emotions sometimes you've got to act this angry scene or um, sad or a sort of repressed scene or joyful or you're walking in a very elegant way like George Bernard Shaw plays would do <laughs> so that all of that sort of thing um, and you learn how that how does that feel inside uh, how does it make you feel 
So it puts you more in touch with your feelings. So it's been really important to me to do that work as well as do all my um, lab science and sustainability. It's some, there's some truth, there's a truth in there that, yeah, I, 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 again, I couldn't explain why I felt compelled to do it. I just knew I had to do it. I really looked forward to it, Meet, meeting a whole diverse range of very creative people doing all kinds of things. Um, I don't know, it sort of sustained me in a way that working in a lab didn't. I could get a lot out of working in a lab. I like so much about science. I'm so interested in all the amazing things that people are doing. But somehow this other part of me wasn't sustained enough by all of that. And yeah, so I think that's what the voice work gave and that sort of resonance. So I'm not really religious, but I love listening to choral evensong. I just find it amazing. So I have pretty diverse musical tastes and that is that is one of them. If I'm doing a really concentrated piece of writing um, and I'm writing uh, a report or uh, some dissertation piece, I will listen to that sort of music. It puts me in a completely different zone altogether. So that resonance and uh, harmony, I think singing together, um, there's some sort of harmony that brings people together by, by doing that that you can't get by any other means, I think. Wow. That's so beautifully said. Because I, I think we need to look at things, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, about um, looking at things holistically. And so I think you need to look at yourself holistically and we're looking at what we're doing in our jobs holistically, mm -hmm. like how does this work, how could it work better? And I think it's always about looking for... The truth, really, you know, and we talked about that before as well, is the, what is the baseline here? What's important? That's the journey that you can go on. I mean, it's taken me probably 30 years to do all of that. Um, I didn't start out like that. I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't have spoken about it. I just had a, a feeling, but I couldn't have really expressed myself back then the way that I can now. So that's been a development. So I think it's not about how you start out. It's the questions you ask of yourself and where you are along the way and that you have the capacity to change uh, in moving whatever direction you want to. And sometimes the obstacles that are there for you, actually either you will overcome them or you go around them or you decide that it wasn't that important anyway and I'm actually much happier doing this. Yeah. So I think it's a journey. I think it's always, um, you're always learning in every aspect of your life. And it's like, well, what can I do? Instead of what is somebody else going to do for me? What can I do? And I think you find that you have more power than you realise. You just have to be persistent with it. And trust. There was an element, yeah, I think that's the other thing, is you have to trust yourself you, it, there's a that 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 gut feeling or in the bones feeling is a, a trusting yourself that this is the right thing to do despite everything else anybody else might say to you you know um and I'll still be learning there'll still be loads of other things that I need to learn along the way but not to just 
be stuck with things and don't feel that you can't challenge things. I think there's ways of challenging that are not confrontational. So I just basically decided to just get on with it and not really tell anybody. I just quite, <laughs> quietly, because I didn't want to deal with the, dis <laughs> the distraction. And it was like, find out the people who will help you. You know, so um, when Kat came to King's and she put me in touch with Peter, it was a revelation. Ah, oh, people actually understand what it is I'm saying here. And it was, a, and th things move really quickly. So I think don't lose heart. And if, you know, everyone is going, no, 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 no. Somebody will at some point understand where you're at. And it's just sometimes waiting and the waiting can be hard. And you feel a bit disillusioned. I mean, there's all of that. Am I doing the right thing? You know, you do question yourself. Um, but there's this resolution in you that it will be thus. <laughs> I, feel I will have this answer one way or the other. Um, but find out the people who will help you. And sometimes the people who don't help you help you indirectly because you then have to find somebody else and then you have to keep asking the questions. So... Just don't give up. You know, just don't give up. That is so well said. To add to that, we also have to know somewhere in us that what we're doing is going to make a difference, even if we're just one person. I, I think it's this thing that people feel that there's nothing, their little action isn't going to have any consequence and lots and lots and lots of little actions have very big consequences. And it's just knowing that you could make small, slight change, uh, reduce your freezer to minus 70 and all of those things. And there's a whole host of things on the Migraine Lab website now in different areas, a huge amount of resource on there that other people have figured out. Use that, you know, okay, so you can't do all of it right now because you're in the middle of a three-year research project on malaria, but you could do one small thing in your lab and get your lab to do that. And then maybe other people on the floor go, oh, well, what are you doing? And then it spreads. It's like, in a way, it's a bit like a virus or a neem. So you start planting these seeds and then gradually more and more people just see, well, why aren't we doing this? Um, so I think small changes can have a really big effect. So don't feel disheartened that, oh, well, I'm only just doing this thing. It's not only just, it's a big thing. And... Everyone can be part of it. It doesn't need acts of heroism. It just needs a slight change of thinking. And to translate that into a little bit of action can have a big consequence. When you speak about that idea that we think if we do something small, it doesn't really make a difference. I think sometimes that we forget that the change happens in both directions, you do something, the action changes something external to you, but the, the act of acting changes something within you. So that then opens up space for additional change and growth. So there's this amazing thing that happens when you start to ask questions and do something different that you yourself open up to the possibility of doing more. So then the consequences of your actions become that much greater. To your point, right, it's not as simple as just, or it's not as, not simple, 
it's not as restrictive as I'm just going to adjust the temperature on a freezer and that's it. It's that you then made a choice to do something different. Other people recognize and see that choice. And now you know something within yourself about the fact that things are a little bit more mutable than you thought they were. And all of that has massive, massive implications for all of us, not just in sustainability, but really in our whole lives. And that's why it's, it's so important to just take that first step because it does something to you too that you can't, it doesn't happen if you don't act. All the theory in the world all the knowing in the world does nothing if you don't act on it. This is why, really, I'm so excited that you're here because you're not just talking about it in the abstract. Right? You, you had these thoughts and you did something. And in doing it, it changed you. And that continued to change mm. the environment, which continued to change you. And it's this beautiful reciprocal thing that happens so that you're able to actually have the, the momentum to to affect a real change. There is no instance then from that perspective where you could start to do something and have it quote unquote fail because you're changing yourself at every step. And if, if you see a problem and you don't get to the solution that you think you were trying to get to, well, that's still information that's valuable for yourself of, okay, well, why didn't that quite work? And where can I apply that to something else? So it's always... It's always a learning experience. It's always an opportunity to grow every time we take an action. But if we don't act, nothing changes within us or yeah, outside. I think I definitely agree. I, I think it's, there's a lot of talk out there. And for me, you know, I was, my grandparents always said to me, actions speak louder than words. And I think, you know, it, it's probably... You just think, oh, yeah, these, all these sayings. Right. But actually, <laughs> you then realise, oh, that's what it meant. Yep. <laughs> you have to do stuff. Our conversation then turned to the importance of sitting in stillness, of valuing those moments of quiet. Even when you're trying to do something different or push an idea or an initiative forward. It's especially important when doing work like this where you're trying to do something no one's done before and quite honestly i think every single person on the planet is in that trying to do something no one else has done before that's our creative energy mm. whether it's something large scale or something that's just in their life that's different it's very good to remember the stillness and i say this as much a, to repeat what you're saying for other people as for myself, because I mm. have to remember this all the time. It's yep. very easy to get caught up in the, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Things need to happen. I'm going to just mm -hmm. throw a bunch of things out into the world. And then nothing, nothing ever comes of that. Just mm -hmm. frantic energy, not that calm, collected, knowing, creative energy. It's totally different yeah because i think you know even in science it's creative you're working on the edge of what is known yeah. I, I don't really see any difference between the science and the art you're making incredible things um a lot of the work that i've been involved in 
It's very visual mm-hmm. and beautiful. So for me, I, I don't really find the difference because you're making things that didn't exist before quite often. And I think a, another thing that helped me find that stillness was when I did Zazen meditation. So I, I started that in about 1995. And because I was doing a million miles an hour, you know, all day, every day. And I, I did find it took me some time. I would go maybe once every nine months. And then I got to go every month. And then I would go every week. And I got to the point where I was doing week-long silent meditations because you kind of need reserves and resources because everything's very external and out there. But actually what the thing that you can be in investigate is what's internal and in there. And, um, yeah, I was a very busy person. I was very doing so many things all the time. And I found it hard. Meditation is actually quite difficult to do because you have to sit still with yourself. And... I feel that that and by doing yoga, breathing, um, I just think that's a whole nother hugely interesting area about how you breathe and how that makes you feel. Finding those calm spaces is really important. So I'm a pretty gregarious person. I work in a busy department of a thousand people. I'm talking to people all the time. I'm I like being in big social situations. But what I realised was that I need to have some time for me. Just, you know, those week... I, I mean, I've only done probably two week-long silent meditations. And they were very deep and very much needed. Again, I couldn't have said why I needed to do that. I just felt that that was the right thing to do. And they're like a reservoir. I use them like a reservoir. So when everything's very... Life is very busy. London is very busy. Everything's very busy here. And sometimes you just need a quiet place to go inside yourself and bring out that um, peaceful and calm place to just reconnect with something again so that you're grounded when you're dealing with all of the things that you have to deal with. So for me, that that also was, was really important to just... And again, I couldn't have probably told you for 15 years what any of that was about, but I just needed to do that as well. (laughs) And I couldn't say why, because it was quite difficult at times. I could be in pain in my back. You know, I get different sensations that you kind of think, I don't really want to have this right now. But you process stuff and then you come out into a different place. And I think it makes you think about things in a different way and certainly feel a huge amount calmer than I ever did because... It's inside me. I'm not looking for that outside. It's sort of a practice that I've done for myself. Um, And I think it makes you, helps you make better decisions because you're not running around uh, everyone else's behest. Mm -hmm. You, there is that to it, but it's like, well, what is the truth of the matter with me Mm -hmm. about how I'm feeling? (laughs) And I find that if I can be in touch with that, I think, okay, yeah. And then figure where, where I am. Um, that, that helps. So I think having that time and space helps you see connections and between things. It just gives you space to breathe and just to be. We're very much, always feel there's like a whole checklist of things to do. I certainly have 
a lot of post-it notes around on my yeah. desk right now with all the list of things I have to do. Um, but you also need time to just go and enjoy. You know, last night I walked through Hyde Park and I go to the rose garden there. I like to know when the roses are out and I go and smell the roses. There are particular rose bushes that just smell delightful. And it is that. It's about to take pleasure in small things that don't cost anything, that just give you give you a moment of pleasure, smell the perfume of that rose. It literally is that. And I laugh every time I go and do it because it's like, oh, yeah, stop and smell the roses. And that's what I do. I literally stop and smell the roses because they're gorgeous and they're lovely colours. And I work in a lab all day and my office doesn't have any windows. So to go outside and, and see sort of some nature and have a bit of fresh air and a walk after work is important to me. So I think it's about finding that time for yourself, that half an hour walk. Um, it takes me longer to get home, but I, it feels like a shorter journey because I've done something for my senses. Yeah, once again, I think I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> oh my God. Um. We have, we, we do talk, we have talked. It's so easy to talk to you and I just enjoy talking to you about these things and because I know that you feel quite similarly to me about all of them and it's really nice to have that connection and understanding and uh, just feel really honoured that you've asked me to be part of this podcast. I really appreciate you thinking about me for that. Oh my goodness, no, thank you for sharing these insights into into our existence on this planet and and for articulating them so perfectly. You have a way of of taking these what could be really complex ideas and just making them so simple and easy to understand. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't I didn't know that I did that, so thank you for Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Before we say goodbye, I'm going to ask this. You can absolutely say no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm nervous. No, nothing to be nervous about. (laughs) Would you be open to sharing something that you learned in the body movement class with sound, with people who are listening? just an exercise or something that we could try together? Yeah, I think the the important thing, so one of the things I tell people, because I, I try and get my text, so I'm involved in uh, getting my text to look at careers and develop them. And one of the things they need to do is give talks. So this is the thing that I tell them to do, is to stand on their feet and really feel, or even if you're sitting, if you're in a meeting and you're sitting, Really have your feet flat on the floor, no legs crossed, um, flat on the floor. And then imagine the breath coming up from your heels all the way up your back, up your neck to the top of your head. And you're inhaling for the duration of, you can, there's like a sensation. Imagine that sensation rising up to the top of your head. And then when you exhale, you're going out forward Um Your knees, if you're standing, your knees are very slightly bent. You're not standing absolutely ramrod straight. And you sort of bounce that exhalation to the ground. And then it travels along the ground. And then it comes up through the back of your heels and feet again. So I do that. Um, I've got to give a presentation soon. 
and I will be nervous about it as usual. And so that's what I use to ground myself because it's a bit intimidating when you've got to speak in front of a group of people. But you can do this at home, even if you're just at home and you just want to do a, a simple breath exercise. Stand on the floor, slightly bend your knees, inhale all the way up to your top the crown of your head, exhale just in front of you. So if you have your eyes down, just imagine that breath is then going in a big circle and hitting the ground and then inhale again. And it's, it's that circle does something. I don't understand what the mechanism is. And I, I use it all the time if I'm giving talks or if I'm in a meeting I'm a bit nervous about. I will ground myself with my feet on the floor, not having my legs crossed, and breathe right down into my belly and just do that. And it just relaxes me. And um, that's probably the most useful and quick breathing exercise that I learned it from my, my voice teacher, Irene Bradshaw. Um, it's just an instant grounding and you feel connected. You've got this circle going and you feel connected with the ground, that you feel the earth. My yoga teacher said to me, the ground is there and it's supporting you and you should feel the support the ground is giving you. And it is when you your feet really connect with the floor. You might want to do it barefoot in, at home and feel the carpet or the lane or, or go out in the garden and do it on the grass. Feel the earth beneath your feet. It is supporting you. And so you're not in your head teetering about thinking, oh, I've got to give this talk and I'm so nervous. So I, I, I would suggest that as a, a really nice exercise. You just do three or four breaths or you could do more. But um, it's I find it really, really grounding and I use it all the time. Thank you very much for sharing that. There is something about that circle that's very, it's very powerful. I don't know very much about it, just that when I feel it, I know I'm where, I know I'm present, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I can stand in front of anything. Mm -hmm. It sort of almost creates this buffer space around you that can buffer mm -hmm. whatever's going to come. Exactly, yeah, that, yeah. That's exactly. You feel like you're in a big bubble yeah. already. And if you want if you want to do a sound with that, so I usually would do the breathing. And if you want to practice, if you're doing a talk, you can just go mmm. You just and mm, hum. Mmm. Mm, okay. Mmm. But it's really in your it's in your um you should be feeling it in your uh chest, in your sternum and in your mouth and up your nose, you should be, it's not an external mm, it's a mm, like that. And then if you want to, mm. as you're doing these oh, breaths. Whoa. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I don't think I've ever ummed internally until you said that. What mm -hmm. a different, so external um, mm, is like pushing that out. But yeah. Mm, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to, so all actors would do that uh, sort of sound because ma, like mother, ma is a really like earthing sound as well. So if you want to do the breath and then you could try uh, mm, as you're doing your inhale and exhale. And then if you want to open your mouth, 
So you would inhale, ma, because you need to project your voice if you're if you're going to give a a talk, and it changes your tone, it changes how you stand, and it carries more weight. I think when you're talking, if you've done a little bit of practice like that. And you can feel a bit uncomfortable doing it, even if you're on your own. You might feel really embarrassed and go red. I know that I used to. <laughs> oh, my God, the neighbours might hear it or something. But um, resonating in your body with that sort of sound uh, can really transform how you talk. And it's something that you need to practice. It's like any muscle. If you go to the gym, you need to practice that. Your voice is your instrument that you use to communicate with other people. And it makes a difference. I know that I would sound completely different after a day of doing classes like that. I would have this huge voice mm. that was very, you know, out there. You feel like 10 feet tall. And then, of course, you gradually crawl back inside yourself again. But um, those are my best things because you, it's, again, it's free to do. And sometimes you can hit your chest as well. Um so that you can resonate when you're doing that sound. So you go, mmm. Because sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's hard to connect. You feel embarrassed if you haven't done it before, but it helps you if you physically tap. It helps you connect with that sound. Is that where your thumbs um, is? Right around that area that you're tapping? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there's loads of other things. I mean, uh, my voice teacher said, I've been teaching it for like 45 years and I'm still learning. And she has, you know, done thousands and tens of thousands of classes with people who want to be actors or business people. But it's just for fun as well. You can just do it to, you know, make a difference uh, in how you sound. It's just something that is fun to do as well. You know, it's good. It's, a, it's good fun. So if there's a voice or body class near where you live, don't be shy. Um, and, and just, you know, if you try it and you don't like it, well, at least you gave it a go. But uh, for me, it gave me grounding and it gave me confidence to, to pursue the career that I've pursued. So I don't regret. I, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to do what I've done without doing that. Um, so I'm really grateful that I was lucky enough to find someone that could fulfill a need that I didn't know I had um, when I went there. So sometimes there's just lucky things that happen to you in your life when you find people who know exactly what it is you need and just give it to you for, you know, you haven't asked for it. Sometimes you need to ask, you need to figure out what it is you need and you need to ask for it. But sometimes there are just people who know exactly what's required and will take you there. And it's finding those people, those guides in your life. I think for some people listening, you're going to be that person based on this conversation. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, that would be good. I, I feel that things are transmitted and if you found something useful, I have learned so many things from other people who have been guided me, have taken me under their wing and showed me things and taught me things. And I just feel that if there's something that you're doing that could help somebody else, then you need to just do that thing. Um, because I, I've had a lot of help from a lot of different people over a lot of years in a lot of different ways, some very minor that have had major effects and some, you know, over a long time period. So I think we're all here to help each other, really, to make sense of all of this. And if, pe if people can 
you know, in some small way, help with that. I think we need to do it. I feel I've benefited so much. If something that I've done would benefit one person, then I would be really pleased about that. I think it benefits far more than one person. <laughs> well, that would be that would be nice if that would, if so. Because yeah, thank I you. I can say it's benefiting me, and I'm already the one person. So <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> we well, a very low bar, and we've already crossed it. <laughs> thank you, really. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a delight to to to, to speak to you again, Alison, as as ever, and. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me to talk today. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Me too. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.